Well, good morning, FBC. Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 18. I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 28, not 18, Matthew chapter 28. Getting back to our mini-series on the pillars of the church. We looked first, quite a few weeks ago, at the grace of the Word of God preached. And today we're going to look at the grace of baptism. That is, we're going to look at the doctrine and practice of baptism, as well as the way in which God strengthens the faith of the believer who is being baptized, and also the faith of those who are observing this ordinance. This also comes at an appropriate time, since we are planning on having a baptismal service soon in the, in the coming weeks. And so, uh, as you hear this message this morning, perhaps you are one who needs to follow the Lord and believer's baptism, follow His instruction that we're going to be looking at together this morning. I would ask you to pray and consider what you hear this morning about this ordinance, about this means of grace, and how God uh, expects us to be obedient in that and how it blesses us as well. This, like many doctrines of the Bible, is not found simply in one place. So this is a bit of a theological message this morning, and it requires a systematic approach. So we're going to be sort of fast and furious with our fingers this morning somewhat, so be prepared for that. But this morning we're going to start in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18. If you're able to, would you please stand for uh, the reading of God's Word in the New Testament this morning? Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Matthew writes, I'm reading from the ESV this morning, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You may be seated. That is the word of God in the New Testament reading this morning. May it be a blessing to you as you've heard it read aloud, both in the Old and the New Testament. In our time of worship, would you join me in prayer now? Lord, by your Spirit who inspired these words and the original autographs, we now ask that you would, by your Spirit who indwells all true believers who sit here this morning, that you would illuminate our eyes and our minds to the study this morning to the truth of your word, and Lord, that you would continue to teach us and grow us in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, strengthen our faith this morning by the preached word, and Lord, may you convict and comfort as appropriate in our hearts today. Lord, may we go forth with the truth this week and proclaim it to those who are lost and encourage our brothers and sisters by it. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, after a hearty rainstorm filled all the potholes in the streets and alleys, a young mother watched her two little boys playing in the puddle through her kitchen window. The older of the two, a five-year-old lad, grabbed his sibling by the back of his head and shoved his face into the water hole. As the boy recovered and stood laughing and dripping, the mother runs to the yard in a panic. Why on earth did you do that to your little brother, she says as she shook the older boy in anger. We're just playing church, Mommy, he said. 
And I was just baptizing him in the name of the Father, the Son, and the, and the Holy Ghost. Takes a second for that to catch up. <laughs> he thought he was playing church by baptizing him in the Holy Ghost. So we don't want that. Somebody just got it. So the reality is, even with these sort of funny stories that we hear about baptism sometimes, and there's many more uh, we could tell, we really, in putting forth something like that, don't want you to be confused like this young boy. We want you to know what the Bible teaches about baptism. And this is a pillar of this local assembly. And uh, I want to say at the beginning, as many of you are aware, we hold at Fellowship Bible Church that the Bible teaches believers' baptism. By that I mean we do not see the Bible teaching pedo or infant baptism, and we love our brothers and sisters who do hold to that, even those who are in our midst this morning who I know and love dearly. But this is the position that we think that the Bible teaches from the Scriptures. I'm not going to make this a debate about infant baptism, But if you have that belief, you will probably find yourself maybe a bit uncomfortable this morning. And that's okay. Uh, We want to make you uncomfortable. No. Uh, We want to know, we know that, at least many of us know the position that you hold and why you hold it. And um, we can have healthy and comfortable and loving debates about that and still love one another and call each other brothers and sisters in Christ. But we have to uh, present it this morning from the perspective of what we hold to be true, and and uh, we will look at it both scripturally, there will be some historical and confessional aspects to it this morning as we look at it, because those things are helpful, and uh, certainly willing to have conversations with you about that. Um, and uh, this is one of those times where I'm going to teach what we teach, and there are some who will be in disagreement with that, but we are nonetheless, as I said, brothers and sisters in Christ, and <clears throat> even if we disagree on this matter, um, we can stand together, unless, of course, you would hold to the fact that someone must be baptized in order to be justified. And that would be a, a line that we cannot cross, and we'll talk about that this morning as well. Here's the main point, though, this morning. Baptism is a commandment to be obeyed by all who have made a profession of faith in Christ. I mean, just simply stated, that is what we hold to, and that is what the main point of our time together this morning will be. Baptism is a commandment to be obeyed by all who have made a profession of faith in Christ. I'm going to walk us through several points today concerning the Bible's teaching on baptism and why we practice it. But it's important for us to to give a brief history of baptism this morning, and and by that I don't mean, I'm I'm not going to walk us through all of church history in any way, but sort of the way that we end up in the New Testament understanding baptism the way that we do. So sort of a a biblical look uh, or history with a bit of extra biblical sort of um, ideas that we pull from history to seek to understand it. For instance, uh, there is a parallel in understanding the ritual of washing of the Old Testament priests and the symbolism of Christian baptism. That is something that some, someone has kind of put together as we look at the ceremonial washing of the Old Testament priests. 
It's also possible, but not definite, that Gentile proselytes, that's those who were Gentiles who were brought into the nation of Israel as non-Jews, but then in the sense of becoming practicing in the sense of the Jewish religion, Gentile proselytes were baptized as a means of being an outward expression of the washing away of their former Gentile ways. Uh, The evidence of that is pretty thin. We're not 100% sure of that, but it's a possibility. The first instance of baptism in the New Testament is the baptism of John, which was an outward expression of an inward repentance. Unlike some of the ceremonial washings of the Old Testament, it is a one-time occurrence. Uh, Somebody who came out to see John the baptizer, uh, they came to follow him in this baptism in the sense of repentance. In other words, they were identifying with his message. And if we look at sort of that intertestamental period between uh, the time of the Old Testament and uh, you know the, the writings, as it were, as the final testament of the Old Testament and the, the New Testament, we do see some ritualistic washing that goes on. So it's not odd that John would come along and say, uh, hey, if we're going to use this idea of baptism, uh, then let's, let's attach it to something like repentance. And so John comes along and says, look, here is my message. My message is one of repentance. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And, and to show that you are in line with this repentance, with this message, um, show this outwardly by baptism because there is now a shift that is going to occur Uh, from uh, the Old Covenant into the New Covenant. And John is the prophet of that. Then we think about Jesus' baptism, which is found in the Gospels, Matthew 3, 13 through 17, Mark 1, 9 through 11, Luke 3, 21 through 22, and John 1, 29 through 34. This was a means of Jesus displaying his agreement with John's baptism. In other words, he comes to John to be baptized to say, yes, this is true. This is a public testimony uh, that was Jesus' identification with John's message. And Jesus says, this must be done to fill all righteousness. And so we think about Jesus' active obedience in this, that Jesus comes to obey all the law and all the prophets. Well, here is a prophet who is saying, uh, this is what is necessary for you to show that you believe that the kingdom is at hand. Now, Jesus clearly doesn't need to repent. He didn't sin. But he is identifying with John's baptism. This is further expressed, um, uh, or, or the further expression of Jesus' baptism, is his identification with mankind as one of them. This is his, uh, this is his opportunity to publicly say, I am a man, and certainly he was uh, truly man and truly God. And um, we then see this further expressed by the Trinitarian affirmation of Jesus' baptism, where the, the Spirit alights like a dove, and the Father proclaims, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased, marking the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. Now, many of you know our friend Greg Fulner. Greg and Courtney uh, moved away down to St. Louis, but they were a part of our church here for many years. Greg wrote a master's thesis on uh, John the baptizer, and in that thesis he states the following, The overarching significance of the theophany, that is the appearance of the Father and the Spirit at the baptism of Jesus, the baptism event, offers a depiction of Jesus as the Son of God who stands in solidarity with all humanity. 
And so we, in Jesus' baptism, see this identification with John's message and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In fact, after this, Jesus goes and proclaims, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Meaning that he himself, as the true God-man, truly God, truly man, the Son of God, has stepped onto the earth. And this is his identification with uh, humanity and his identification with John's message. Therefore, as Christ has identified himself with mankind... After our conversion, we are, to, we are to identify with him who was crucified for our sins, buried in a real tomb, and risen again three, after three days. And, and we do practice immersion here in, in our church. And, and that signifies, we believe, that idea of uh, dying and being buried and being raised again with Christ. That is the, the symbolism of baptism So therefore, as Christ identified with humanity, in that identification with humanity, he goes uh, forward in his act of obedience, obeys the law and the prophets perfectly. He is um, uh, placed upon a cross to die for the sins of uh, of sinners. Um, He um, also is buried, truly buried, and he is raised again three days later. And we are identifying with the truth of that salvation message, if you will. Listen to the way that the London Baptist Confession summarizes this in their section of baptism, paragraph 1. The London Baptist Confession and those men who sat down to write this out say this, Baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ to be unto the party baptized a sign of his fellowship with him in his death and resurrection, of his being engrafted into him. Paul speaks of, we're going to see in Romans 6, being baptized into Christ. Uh, of the remission of sins. Uh, It is a sign of that. And of giving up into God through Jesus Christ to live and walk. My pages are sticking together. To live and to walk in newness of life. So that is uh, what the early uh, Baptists in really 1689 and, and really a little bit before that, probably 1677, when they wrote this document, said this is what baptism is according to the Scriptures. It is not just a sign of our salvation. It is a sign that points to what our salvation means. So we see a little bit of the history of baptism there. Then we see, secondly, on your handout, the command to baptize. The command to baptize. Again, if your Bibles are still open to Matthew 28... Verses 18 through 20. This is where we see this command. At the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, he commissions his apostles to make disciples. Go, therefore, verse 19 says, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This is the thrust of the statement, by the way, to make disciples. But how is... Uh, it in these three modifiers to the command to be. We are to make disciples by going, by baptizing, and by teaching. That's a way we can understand this. Go make disciples, baptize, uh, I'm sorry, uh, go, baptize, and teach. And this becomes the mode of the Great Commission as is seen in the rest of the New Testament. Going is the practice that we see in the ministry of Paul. He goes to different regions and doesn't just evangelize, but remains in places for uh, times, at times, many years, uh, starting churches and teaching them about the Lord. 
In 1 Corinthians, we see that though he had not baptized many, he had baptized some. So clearly this was part of the practice he had in the early days of planting churches. As we'll see in a moment, this is no different than the beginning of the New Testament church in the book of Acts. But there is no question as to what the apostles were doing when, as they went on their way making disciples and then passing on to others the commission which Jesus gave. And it was not just make converts. It wasn't just have people make decisions. It was make disciples. Make disciples. With the correlating practice of baptism, as we would teach it here, that's the initial form of obedience and the initiatory right into the church as well as teaching. And we'll see some of that come about in our time together this morning. But here in Matthew chapter 28, we see this command. It is an imperative In the scriptures, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So we, we begin here with this command. It is not optional. Baptism is not optional. And, and really, anybody who believes in any form of biblical baptism in our day and age, whether that's our brothers and sisters who practice uh, pedo baptism, that is infant baptism, or believer's baptism, Uh, there is an understanding that this is a command. This is what God calls us to do. This is not optional. So whether we agree or disagree on the mode of baptism, we agree on this, that there is a command that, as a part of making disciples, we are to baptize. And therefore, the reverse of that, or not the reverse, but the flip side of that coin is that if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are to be baptized. And that is something that, uh, again, from, from our perspective, the way that we understand it, that we would encourage you to do if you have not been baptized after professing faith in Christ that you ought to, to do. Now, again, if, if you have been baptized as an infant and, and uh, you are here in our midst, we can have conversations about that and, and all those kinds of things. But if you have never been baptized at all, Uh, you need to be baptized. It is a command. It is something that the Lord calls us to do in our disciple-making. Well, moving on from the command, let's talk a bit about the practice of baptism. The practice of baptism. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, where we see the early New Covenant church being formed recognizing that this early New Covenant church is Jewish in nature. The first members of the early New Covenant church, as Jesus has died and been raised again, the Old Testament saints looking forward to His life, death, and resurrection. Now this has occurred The new covenant has been begun in Jesus. And now a new covenant people of God is beginning. And it begins very much with a Jewish foundation in Acts chapter 2. 3,000 added to the church that day. And uh, maybe you know where I'm going in Acts chapter 2. And you say, boy, this is a really controversial passage. Acts chapter 2 and verse 38 But let's keep in mind the significance of the fact that this is a Jewish audience. And 
what they would be understanding and what they would know as Peter is preaching to them this gospel message. Look at verse 37. Now when they had, or now when they heard this, let's pause for a moment. Heard what? What had they heard? Well, Peter has just preached to them from the Old Testament, the coming of Christ. And and they now know that, for lack of better terms, they, along with everyone else, we're not just saying this is true of Jewish people, because Peter later on says that it is the Jews, the Romans, Pontius Pilate, who have put Jesus to death. But for lack of a better way of saying it, they know they have blood on their hands. They know that they have crucified the Lord of glory, Peter says later on. Look at what they say, though, with this idea in their minds of the Messiah is truly Jesus. We have put him to death. Yes, he has been raised again. Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Old translations say cut to the quick. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What had John the Baptist preached? We've talked about this a bit this morning. He preached a baptism of repentance. It was an outward symbol of an inward repentance. This is the same for what Peter tells the men who are cut to the heart and desire to be reconciled to God. He he said, this is what you must do. You must repent and be baptized. The problem in this passage seems kind of obvious to us, especially those of us with Western thought. It is that it seems like Peter is equating repentance with baptism. or, Or saying you must be baptized in order to receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, Clearly, um, that does seem to be a problem as we read this passage. Let me just read to you uh, something that a, a commentator wrote that I think is helpful. Longenecker has written, it is in try, I'm sorry, in trying to deal with the various elements in this passage, some interpreters have stressed the command to be baptized so as to link the forgiveness of sins exclusively with baptism. But it runs contrary to all biblical religion to assume that outward rites have any value apart from true repentance and an inward change. The Jewish mind, indeed, could not divorce inward spirituality from its outward expression. That is what we have to keep in mind. The Jewish mindset was, if I am now turning to Jesus as my Lord and Savior, I must outwardly show that repentance by means of baptism. That was their mindset. Continuing long and ecker, wherever the gospel was proclaimed in a Jewish milieu, the rite of baptism, listen, was taken for granted as being inevitably involved. It was just part and parcel of the gospel message. If I'm going to make an inward change, I'm going to show it outwardly. It is simply wrong to conclude that baptism in and of itself has any saving effect. Just as a chapter later, Peter doesn't mention it with the gospel. He mentions a washing of renewal, which I would say, in a sense, is the symbolic outward expression of baptism. But he never says outrightly, be baptized. Why? Because it was assumed. It was assumed. But 
It is not ever in the scriptures given as an um, uh, an effective means by which we are saved. No external rite can do that. It is wrong to conclude that baptism in and of itself has any saving effect. As I mentioned, just as a chapter later, Peter doesn't mention it with the gospel. But it is just as wrong to assume that a person who is unwilling to be baptized is actually born again. For it follows that it is a command. And if you love Jesus, he says what? Keep my commandments. There simply was no one in the New Testament who would have been born again and not baptized. You will not find a believer in the New Testament who is saved but not baptized. Peter indicates that there is a correlation between baptism and the conscience of the person who has believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Take and turn to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21. If you're lost, 1 Peter is right before 2 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21. Again, another difficult passage and one, if it's taken out of its context, can be confusing. I hope to clear that up this morning. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, this does not mean salvation. We have to be careful how we understand that word, saves. Because we use that word interchangeably with justification all the time. That's not the idea here in what Peter is saying. Salvation here is not in regards of justification, but as a means of sanctification, of growing in holiness, of, of having our consciences clean and, and understanding what it means to be saved. As the great uh, commentator Karen Job says, she says, Peter reminds his readers that a baptism, at baptism they pledge to live in relationship with God, which, re- would, which would result in a good conscience before him. They have pledged to live for God at their baptism, pledged to live in relationship with him, which would result in a good conscience before him. Of this verse also David's writes, First, while baptism does consist in a washing with water, it is not this outward washing, the removal of dirt from the body, that is salvific or saving. The water does not have a magical quality, neither does the outward ritual. Second, baptism saves through a pledge or answer to God from a good conscience. This is likely a formal answer to a pledge of committing oneself to following Christ. And this pledge is worth noting. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, the outward commitment, baptism, which is symbolic, is efficacious. Only if the inward commitment is based upon the reality of faith in Christ's resurrection. True inward change and washing. In other words, the external ritual is only as real as the inward change. Not because it affects anything, but because it is for the the moment of pledging, saying, I am a follower of Christ, therefore this is my pledge to follow Him. And my conscience is, 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 is clear before the Lord because I, before you, the church, am baptized to show you that reality. Yet another commentator Tom Schreiner states, Peter repudiates an ex opera operato. 
Meaning that baptism or any other sacramental action saves by virtue of the action itself being performed. Peter repudiates that kind of view of baptism. For he immediately qualifies the statement that baptism saves. It does not save mechanically or externally as if there are magical properties in the water. Peter comments that the mere removal of dirt from the body does not bring salvation, demonstrating that the water itself does not save. Baptism is only saving if there is an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, baptism saves only because it is anchored to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The waters themselves do not cleanse, as is the case when a bath removes dirt from the body. So it it is in the sense of this tying to a conscience that is before God saying, I love you, Lord, I want to live for you, I identify with this message. Uh, Turn now to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Look at verse 1, and we'll read down quite a ways here. Now, just for context, Paul is in the midst of giving instruction about sanctification here, how it is we grow in the, in, in the grace of God because we are saved. And he is talking about the tendency we have in and of ourselves to struggle still with sin. That's the reality here. We're going to, to struggle with sin. And, and he's just out, outlaid this, this beautiful picture of grace and how we can do nothing to earn grace. Grace is sufficient for our salvation. So chapters... You know, sort of three through five is grace, 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 which is what we need. But here's how Paul responds to that in chapter six and verse one. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? And he says to that, by no means. Now, just for a moment, think about this. Uh, If he's talking about grace, grace, grace upon grace, and, 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 and then he has to temper that with this. Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound. The point of, uh, that he's saying when he says no is grace has already abounded. That is what I've been talking about for the last few chapters. He wouldn't have said chapters, but you know what I'm saying. Are we continuing sin that, so that grace may abound? By no means. And then he says this, how can we who died to sin still live in it? And, and live in it, there's this idea of continual uh, habitual sin for which we are not repenting. He goes on to explain this very well in chapter 6 through 8. And then he says this, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. There's that phrase that we see back in the London Confession. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So we see this. 
This idea of being dying with Christ and being buried with him and walking in newness of life sort of expressed through this idea that our old self has been crucified and has died. So the question then is, what is Paul referring to here when he talks about being baptized into Christ? Is it spiritual baptism or water baptism? The answer I would give is yes. It is both. It refers in one sense to the internal and also to the external, which represents the internal. In other words, as I mentioned before, there would be no one in the New Testament times who would not have been baptized as a believer. It would have been the case. They, they think of baptism as uh, coinciding with uh, this idea of being baptized spiritually. Schreiner, again, is helpful. The reference to baptism is introduced as a designation for those who are believers in Christ. Since unbaptized Christians were virtually non-existent, to refer to those who were baptized in another way of this is, I'm sorry, is another way of describing those who are Christians, those who have put their faith in Christ. Thus, Paul is saying here that all Christians have participated in the death and burial of Christ, for all Christians had received baptism. To posit that baptism mentioned here is simply metaphorical, or baptism in the Spirit, rather than water baptism, is incorrect. Roman Christians would have inevitably thought of water baptism since it was the universal initiation rite for believers in Christ. So when somebody in the New Testament says, I have been baptized into Christ, they understand that both as spiritual and physical. They would not have understood it any other way. Another way to say it is there is no such thing, and again, please, for all my dear infant baptism folks here this morning, please understand the perspective I'm coming from. There was no such thing as an unbaptized first century believer. As as Schreiner says, they're virtually non-existent. We have so separated what is the absolute necessity for someone to be born again, i.e., what is the bare minimum someone must do to be saved, And by that, we have stripped the command of Jesus in Matthew 28 down to the steps one must take to receive Christ. Rather than seeing that Christ commands us to repent and live our life for him, as is demonstrated initially through the waters of baptism. In other words, we we kind of present a plan of salvation to someone and say, here are the bare minimum things that you must believe in order to get into the kingdom. And we, we leave out the idea that there is a step of obedience that comes right afterwards to show the initiation into the body of Christ. We have so individualized salvation and we are saved. We are saved as individuals, but we are saved into a body. And how is that signified? We are baptized into the body of Christ. And how is that symbolized outwardly? We are physically baptized. And it is in this way that we understand baptism as a means of grace. Let me explain that to you because some of you hear that term means of grace and you immediately think of saving grace. And that is not what I'm saying. That is not what that phrase means. We are not saying that baptism confers saving grace, but rather, as Steve Wellam writes, in the practice of baptism, there is a blessing of God. In our obedience to Christ and our public act of confessing him, the Lord of the church pours his love and joy into our hearts. When baptism is practiced as a sign of the believer's union with Christ, the Holy Spirit, listen, strengthens our faith and encourages us to press on. In our celebration of this ordinance, in the presence of the body of Christ, that is the church, the people of God are encouraged in their commitment to the Lord and to each other. How is it therefore a means of grace? It strengthens our faith. It strengthens our commitment. Do we not rejoice when someone is baptized? I mean, in this church, we 
hoop and holler and clap when someone is baptized. Well, maybe not hoop and holler so much. We give some good amens, right? But we do clap. Why are we rejoicing when someone is baptized? Because it is a means of God's blessing to those who are observing it as well. Are you not blessed when you see someone baptized? Are you not strengthened in your own commitment to say, look at this brother or sister, they are, they are giving their commitment to the Lord today. They are publicly stating they are walking with Christ. Yes, Lord, renew that in my heart as well. That is what we mean by the means of grace. It is a grace, gracious conference of the strengthening of faith by the Spirit in the hearts of those who are observing and the hearts of those who are being baptized. It is a means of conferring a, 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 a symbol of commitment to following Christ. You are saying, I am walking in newness of life. Romans chapter 6 and verse 4. It is a means of saying, I am one who has died with Christ, have been buried, raised again, and I am walking with him. It is symbolic of Christ's Life, death, and resurrection. It is symbolic of the gospel. It is a telling forth of the gospel. It is saying just as Christ died for sinners, was buried, was raised again, and all who believe in him can be reconciled to God, I am showing forth that message this morning and my commitment to it by being baptized. So now this leaves us with the question of why People don't get baptized. Why do people not get baptized? What is the reason for that? And this is anecdotal. This is anecdotal. This is just conversations I've had with people over the years or, or conversations that others have shared with me about others who are not and do not want to be baptized. Number one, they don't see it as important. And let me lay the blame of that at the church. Certainly, Baptistic-style churches. Again, we have underemphasized the, the need of obedience because we've just whittled everything down to believe this and you're good. But that's not discipleship. That's not making disciples. Making disciples is what Jesus says. Go, baptize, and teach. We must go and make disciples. And as we are going, we must baptize them as the first step of obedience First identification with that gospel message. And then we teach them. We, we come alongside of them and we disciple them. We bring them up in the faith as if they were children who were, I don't know, born for the second time, as we say. Now, this is legitimate. I'm not trying to make fun of anybody. This is truly legitimate. They are frightened of water. I've had that conversation. I am just scared of being in a baptismal with water. And quite mechanically and practically, let me just tell you, you don't have to be scared of our baptismal. You actually get to sit down and your head is above water. Only time your head goes underwater is when I or another pastor, you know, puts your head underwater for, you know, we're not, we're not holding down saying in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and you're going to be raised into new life and quoting a bunch of Bible verses, right? We wouldn't do that to you. So you don't need to be fearful so thankful for those who have been fearful, who have heard this message and decided, I need to anyway. And they did. They're frightened of speaking publicly because we do ask that you give a testimony 
of how you came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just say this. You don't need to be scared of that either. If you simply would like to affirm that you have placed your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ by saying yes to that question, yes is all you have to say. You don't have to stand up and make a full speech. You know, uh, all of you who were like anxiety ridden in speech class in your first year of college, that's not what we're looking to do, okay? We just need you to affirm publicly that you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ because that's what you're doing by your baptism. And then lastly, and this is the category I, I, I don't really, please do not find yourself in this category. Come and speak with me or one of the brother pastors or a friend and just know this. Some are embarrassed that it has taken so long. They hear a message like this this morning and they just think, it's been too long. I can't do that now. That's embarrassing. Please don't be embarrassed by that. I guarantee you that no one will think ill of you. They will only rejoice with you. Don't be embarrassed. So then we, after asking the question, why don't people get baptized? Let me then say why believers should be baptized. Why believers should be baptized. Number one, is it is a command. It is a command. Therefore, it is obedience. If you claim to be a believer in Jesus Christ and you ultimately refuse to be baptized, well, again, all the caveats with my paedo-baptist friends, you are also ultimately saying something about whether or not you are truly born again. If you refuse to obey the Lord in this command, what else are you going to say no to when the pressure of persecution comes? We talked about that last week. Ultimately, one of the hallmarks of baptism in the early church was a separation from what was known to what was unknown. To identify yourself publicly with Christ was to deny yourself to take up your cross and follow Christ to death. Christianity is a religion of life and death. You have died with Christ and you have been raised with Christ so that you may die living for Christ so you may live unto him for eternity, never to die again. Did you catch that? Let me say it again. You have died with Christ... And you have been raised with Christ so that you may die living for Christ, so you may live unto him for eternity, never to die again. That is what believing water baptism symbolizes. It is tied closely to your inward conversion. It is an outward expression of your obedience of faith. You may think, well, people know I'm a Christian. I've told them many times. But God has clearly stated in his word that this is how you express it, through baptism. It's a point of accountability. It is your declaration to a specific local, local assembly that you have been born again, and as such, a place where one is uh, in that local assembly, uh, ones who are in that local assembly can point and say, remember your public declaration of what you have said that you have believed. And that's why when you become a member of this church, and we ask you, when were you water baptized? And, and sometimes people are able to come up with a date. Others are able to say, when I was 16 or or whatever, we want to be able to point to that and say, this is when you made that commitment to the Lord before a local assembly. Now, that wasn't our local assembly, but that transfer of baptism, that understanding is that you publicly declared yourself a follower of Christ. And we want to call you to that. So let me say, if you are present with us this morning and have not repented and turned to Christ and turned away from your sin, repent, trust Christ, and be made new in Him. Baptism is only an outward expression of an inward washing away of sin. It is a means by which the believer being baptized and those who are observed are being strengthened in their faith. 
It is a means of, of declaring publicly that you have trusted Christ. If you have gone into the waters of baptism unregenerate, not a Christian, you come out wet and unregenerate. You must be born again. Would you come and speak with one of our elders this morning if that is where you are? For those who are in Christ and you have yet to be baptized as a public declaration of your inward conversion, to put it bluntly, you need to obey. Baptism is a means of sanctification. It is a public declaration to the local church that you are who you say you are in Christ. And I would encourage you to encourage those who you know need to be baptized to do that. Encourage them in that. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, first and foremost, as we study this together this morning, we know that it is through the Lord Jesus Christ and His life, death, and resurrection alone that we are reconciled to You. So I pray for those who do not know You that have heard this message this morning that what has come through loud and clear is that there is no mechanism by which we can be saved that is only by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that we are reconciled to God. The ordinance of baptism being that outward expression of the inward reality, a seal on the conscience, a point of accountability, a a way that we are strengthened in our faith, whether we are the one who is being baptized or the observation of it. But it in and of itself is not able to save. Lord, only you can save and you do so by regenerating hearts and giving faith. And so I pray that even as I say and, and call upon people to repent and believe that, Lord, by your Spirit you are convicting, you are regenerating, and you are giving the gift of faith and repentance. Lord, would you do that this morning? And would there be those who do not know you who come to faith in you because of that? Because they have heard the gospel, because you are moving by your Spirit. Uh, Lord, there are some... Uh, who, as we count baptism for the believer in this local assembly, who have made professions of faith and being in this kind of church and this kind of background have not been baptized. Lord, would they take that step of obedience when we do this in a few weeks? May they come and talk with myself or one of the brother pastors and, and determine to do that. And Lord, we also recognize that the, the, though this may separate us in practice from other brothers and sisters in Christ. It does not separate us as brothers and sisters in Christ. We can fellowship and love each other well, even though we disagree on this point. Uh, Lord, may we continue to have that great um, love for one another, even if we disagree on this matter, even though it may separate us in fellowship uh, in, in regard to In regard to worship and practice, Lord, may it not separate us in regard to our true brother and sisterhood in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would bless these words, take away anything that's been distracting, only bring to mind what is true. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.